think it's fair to say that the prospect of death has a way of revealing one's priorities. It brings to the surface what one truly treasures. And this is no less the case for the Apostle Paul. And as we will see, we see it come through in his letters. As he is in prison, not sure if he is going to survive this prison sentence, he fleshes out in his letters what is at the top of his heart. What is of greatest burden and greatest concern. And this includes the book of Philippians. Now over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to preach a couple times from the book of Philippians. From Philippians chapter 1. And the first sermon was on verses 1 through 8, entitled, The Beauty of Gospel Fellowship. The second one covered verses 9 and 11 on the priorities of prayer, how the gospel changes what we pray for. I invite you to find those on the website if you weren't here for those. And today I'll be picking up in verse 12, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. But before we jump into those verses, let me give us some context to help us understand what we're diving into. Philippians is a book, as I've said, is written by the Apostle Paul during his first Roman imprisonment, which was during the early 60s AD. And it was written to a church that Paul had founded only 10 years prior. It was during Paul's second missionary journey as he was heading through Galatia and he wanted to go north into Bithynia, but the Spirit prevented him from doing that. In fact, he got a vision in the night by a Macedonian man saying, come to Macedonia and help us here. And with that, Paul and Silas and Timothy go down to the coast at Troas. They jump on a boat and head for Macedonia. They landed at Neapolis, the coastal city, and then went inland 10 miles to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a leading city of the district and a Roman colony, as Paul makes mention in Acts chapter 16. And being a Roman colony, it had the same status as the colonies of Italy, and it prided itself in being on that same status. Now, when Paul and his companions came into the city, we read of the account of how they went to a place of prayer down by the river, and there, they, there was a gathering of women there that were praying, and they led Lydia to the Lord. It says the Lord opened her heart to understand all that Paul was sharing. But it also recounts in Acts 16 of how a slave girl started following them around and started calling out that these were the servants of the Most High God. And you would think that a little announcer might not be the, such bad of a thing, but it began to get under Paul's skin. And he gets annoyed, and finally he turns around and casts out the demon from her. And this was a problem for her owners because this girl having a demon in her was able to tell the fortunes of people, and her owners got a lot of money from that. So you can imagine when their source of income dried up, they got pretty angry. They dragged Paul and Silas before the rulers of the city. The magistrates then had them beaten with rods and cast into prison. It's there in prison. 
in the middle of the night that Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God and praying, and God sends an earthquake, which breaks open all the prison doors, breaks off the shackles of the prisoners. The jailer calls for a light. He runs in, realizes all the gates are open, and calls for his sword because he's going to kill himself because he's just uh, failed in the one job that he had. But it's there that Paul stops the jailer from killing himself, and the jailer comes trembling and falls on his knees before Paul and Silas and asks his famous question, what must I do to be saved? To which Paul and Silas answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he and his household believed and then were baptized. And so this was the beginning of the, of the church at Philippi. We know that there was Lydia and her family. We know there's the jailer and his family. And as they continued to speak the gospel there in Philippi, the church continued to grow. It seems from the account that Paul passed through Philippi at least two more times in his travels, encouraging the believers there, no doubt seeing the growth that had happened. And his heart for this church was great. They were a church that were aligned with his mission. They were partners with him in the work of the gospel as the early verses of Philippians chapter 1 tells us. From the very beginning of the church until this time of the writing of the book of Philippians, the Philippian believers had exhibited a concern for Paul and great generosity toward him. As you read the account in Acts 16, Lydia, the first convert, the first believer there in Philippi, opens her home and and asks Paul and his band of missionaries to come and to stay and to find refreshment at her home. You see hospitality springing out of the gospel there in Lydia's heart. But this desire for love and concern for Paul continued. The book of Philippians tells us that they repeatedly sent financial assistance to Paul when he was in a nearby city like Thessalonica. And they also sent it now that he's in Rome by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus. And these people were dear to him and he rejoices in their progress in the faith. And the passage we're covering this morning comes after Paul has opened the letter with thanksgiving to God for this church in verses 1 through 8. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel, and he says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. His heart of gratitude then leads him to pray for these dear people in verses 9 through 11. He prays that their love would abound still more and more, and that they would be more and more fruitful for Christ. And so after expressing his love and concern for the Philippian church, he then turns his attention to give an update on, the situa- on his situation beginning in verse 12. And so let's begin re- reading. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through verse 18a. Please follow along as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This morning from this passage, we're going to see two ways that Paul prioritized the gospel. Two ways that Paul prioritized the gospel so that we too might put the cause of Christ first in our lives. The first way that Paul prioritized the gospel, we see in verses 12 and 14, that Paul prioritized the advance of the gospel over his own welfare. He prioritized the advance of the gospel over his own welfare. And he modeled this prioritization through his letter, through his evangelism, and his example. Let's first see how he modeled it in his letter. The words Paul used here in verse 12, where he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. This formula, I want you to know, was a common way for people of that time to signal that they were about to give a personal update. We have letters from that time period in which this same formulation is used. And so the Philippians would have heard those words and instantly thought, ah, okay, Paul expressed his thanks for us, he's praying for us, now we get to hear how our beloved Paul is doing. And you can imagine how someone even today might use this same terminology. Maybe you use this, right? Particularly even after a catastrophic event and the family's wanting to know how you're doing and you can start off that text message saying, I want you to know that I'm okay. We, we use that, even that same terminology today, assuring them, I want you to know for certain what I'm about to tell you. And in one sense, a personal update, again, is exactly what the Philippians are hoping for. They love Paul. They want to hear how he's doing. They know he's in chains, and they want to know that their spiritual father is doing well. But it's here that we see Paul prioritizing the gospel. He skips the opportunity to talk about himself and instead talks about what really excites him, and that is the progress and advance of the gospel. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, his readers already know what happened to him. We need to be reminded, what are the circumstances? How did Paul wind up in the place that he is? Well, after his third missionary journey, he went to Jerusalem, and there he was arrested by the Jews and placed in Roman custody. He then appeals to Caesar while he is in custody, which means that he wants to take his case all the way to Rome before Caesar. And this was a right that all Roman citizens had to appeal to Caesar. Well, in order to get to Rome from Israel, uh, it's quite a long ways, and so it sends him on a harrowing ship ride across the Mediterranean Sea that involves everything from a shipwreck to a snake bite. But he finally arrives in Rome several years after his arrest in Jerusalem. So he's been in custody for several years just by the time he arrives in Rome. 
And now at the time of writing, he's under house arrest. This was the way the Romans dealt with people awaiting trial as they put them in prison. And he's able to, the end of Acts tells us, to be in a house where people were able to visit him, but he was still there with the guards and being chained up. Now Paul knows, and maybe you heard from Epaphroditus, who was a member of the Philippian church and was sent to Rome to minister to Paul. Maybe you heard from him, but he knows that the Philippians are tempted to despair because of Paul and his situation. Again, put yourself in the Philippians' shoes. They're part of a fledgling movement in that time called the Way, which we know today as Christianity. And this was only a few years old, having spread across the known world, mainly by the work of the Apostle Paul. And now this fearless leader is chained up. The one who brought the good news is locked up. And so you can imagine they'd be tempted to be concerned that Christ and his gospel might be stamped out. This early stage is the, the, the plant is just beginning to grow. Is it now going to be snuffed out? How could the gospel go forward if Paul is in prison? It seems to be that was God's way of piercing into the darkness was Paul. And here he is locked up. Now these concerns and questions prompted Paul to write these very verses. He wanted the Philippians to be certain that his imprisonment was not hindering the gospel, but was helping it. So you can sense some of Paul's excitement in relaying this information. He's under house arrest, but he's jazzed about what God is doing in the face of opposition. And we should be too. Now this dynamic, he says that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. This dynamic of of opposition serving the greater purposes of God is nothing new to the readers of the Bible. We know that God is in the business of turning evil circumstances, what people intend for evil, and turning them for his ultimate good. Two clear examples to remind you of, but the scriptures are full of them. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. The Old Testament, Joseph right? His brothers sold him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. And several times he seems to get a bit of bad luck. And he can't seem to break free. And yet we know through it all that God was working. And at the end in Genesis chapter 50, his brothers come to him thinking that Joseph is going to take vengeance on them. And instead Joseph says, no, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He saw the greater purpose that God was protecting his nation Israel in the land of Egypt by sending Joseph down there. And so we can see that God using what was intended for evil for his ultimate good. But obviously the greatest example of this is the cross. It's our Lord. Where Jesus Christ was crucified at the hand of lawless men And yet, God used the greatest sin in history for the greatest good in history. Friends, this is what God is about. And Paul understands that. And he is slipping in line in that same vein. 
One of the ways that God shows his mighty power and his sovereignty in this fallen world is the harnessing of evil for his purposes. Evil is not outside of his control, but it falls within the bounds of God's sovereignty. Even though he doesn't enjoy evil or want more evil to be done, he ordains and uses it for his overall plan. Wickedness does not thwart his plans. Evil actions against his people might be setbacks to our plans, but never to his. He's always only had a plan A. He's never had to go to a plan A, plan B. He's never had to even devise a plan B. And in this case, the persecution of God's people was actually causing to advance the gospel. We see that all through the book of Acts, right? The enemies of God want to stamp out the gospel, and then it causes it to spread. We see this also in history, such as the church in the Soviet Union in the 20th century, or the church in communist China. They try to stamp out the gospel. Satan tries to silence it, but the gospel gets louder. Well, this is a pretty bold claim for Paul to make, to say that the gospel is actually advancing. And you could see some skeptics or critics go, yeah, you think that, Paul, but come on, you're locked up. Do you, is it really going forward? You're just an optimistic thinker. But he backs it up with proof in verses 13 and 14. So first we see that Paul prioritizes the gospel over his own welfare by what he chose to write about in his letter. But then we see, secondly, in his evangelism. Verse 13, he says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul has been locked up, but his mouth has not been shut up. It is, he will write later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where he says that he is suffering for the gospel, bound in chains as a criminal. But then he says, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God continues forth. It cannot be locked up. In verse 13 here, he identifies two groups. He says the whole imperial guard or the praetorian guard, and then he says all the rest or everyone else. The imperial guard or praetorian guard translates the Greek word praetorian, and this could mean either the governor's residence, as is the case in the Gospels, it's used that way, but it can also refer to the group of soldiers commissioned to guard the emperor, and it seems best to understand this reference as the emperor's guards because of Paul's location in Rome. Now, everyone else or all the rest mentioned here is really just a general term. We don't know exactly who Paul is talking about, but it seems to refer to all the rest he's coming in contact with. Everyone else within his circle of influence as he's there under house arrest. This could be messengers who come and go. This could be servants who come and attend to his needs. It could be other officials who come and relay official business. We don't know. But Paul says that to these two groups, they know full well the reason for his imprisonment. They know why he is in chains. They know he's there because of Christ. Now, Paul was not wearing some banner on his clothes or some, uh, you know, 
name tag or something that declared why he was there. I mean, there was going to be a certain official designation in the paperwork that said he appealed to Caesar, he was in, he was in Israel, and he, some Jews, this and that, and, and they're going to have some official reason. But for them to know that it's for Christ means that Paul had to tell them. How do they know that, that his imprisonment was for Christ? It's because Paul opened his mouth and spoke about Christ to his captors. And in this I believe we see a great example of everyday evangelism at work. He sees himself as an ambassador for Christ wherever he is. He didn't think that he was off the job now that he was in chains. Friends, Paul provides an instructive example for us. We too are placed in situations where we can capitalize on the opportunity to speak about Christ. Now, admittedly, Paul had an easy way to start the conversation, right? You want to know why I'm here? Sure. And off he goes. And he's got a captive audience, right? There's guards that have to stand there and watch him day in and day out. But this is an important principle to remember. Wherever there are people, there is ministry. Wherever there are people, there is ministry. If you're laying in a hospital bed, you have an opportunity to speak about Christ. If you're carpooling with coworkers, you have an opportunity to speak about Christ. If you're chatting with a mom at the park, you have a ministry opportunity. Folks, I believe we miss many opportunities to speak about Christ simply because we're not looking for opportunities. We're not aware of the people who God has placed right in front of us. Now, it's important to note a few things we can learn from Paul's evangelism here. The first is that his evangelism is clear. His evangelism is clear. Note that it says in verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That word for known could be translated clear as well. Is this idea that it's crystal clear among everybody why exactly is here. There's no confusion. There's no ambiguity. There's no beating around the bush that Paul has done to kind of talk about, oh, I'm here for religious reasons. No, he said, I'm here because of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene who died upon the cross in Jerusalem and can save you if you would believe in him. The question is, are we prepared to give a clear answer? for the opportunities that God places us in? Can we give the gospel message in a clear way so that it can become crystal clear and known to all around us who we are and why we live for Christ? Friends, if you feel like your gospel message is rusty and if someone were to quiz you and ask you the gospel, and surprise you with it, that you wouldn't be able to give a clear answer, I encourage you, freshen up on that. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. Begin sharing it to other believers. In college, we had a thing that started going around where we would randomly walk, uh, walk up to one another and we'd, we'd say, gospelize me. And we, it would cause us to kind of quickly... You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. 
and we'd give a quick gospel presentation in order to keep, us, keep the gospel fresh on our minds and quick on our tongues. And I think something like that would be good for us to be regularly engaged in. The second thing we see from Paul's evangelism is that it was indiscriminate. Paul makes it clear. He says, the whole Praetorian Guard and all the rest. He doesn't say some of them or a few of them. He says all of them. It didn't matter who walked into that house. Paul was going to engage them with the gospel because he loved them. And he knew that the best way that he could serve them was to tell them how they could be saved from their sins and escape eternal judgment. You could imagine, some of the guards probably loved it. We don't have any word that any of them came to Christ, but no doubt a few of them did. But some of them possibly could have been annoyed by the gospel, didn't want to hear anything of it. And they read their orders for the week, and they're like, oh, I got Paul again this week. He's just going to spend hour after hour telling me about Jesus. <laughs> and yet Paul wasn't going to let up. Folks, in the midst of suffering, and this is where we, we see here how Paul was prioritizing the gospel over his own welfare, even in his evangelism, because in the midst of suffering, we can so easily pull into ourselves, can we not? We think about our needs and, and our pains and our aches and the things that are happening to us. And we fail to see the needs of others. We stop being concerned for those around us as much. We can be so focused on our own needs at the moment. And yet, see how Paul made the gospel his first concern by evangelizing while he was stuck in prison. He was not having a pity party. He was having an evangelistic crusade. May we too be faithful to love the lost and speak for Christ wherever we are, whether we're suffering or not, to all the people that God places in front of us. I challenge you to pray for God to open your eyes to the lost around you, to open your mouth with the gospel on your tongue. One further point I want to note here is that the advance, Paul mentions specifically the advance of the gospel. He says the gospel is making progress. But he doesn't necessarily mention conversions, which is typically how we might think of gospel progress. And again, like I said, no doubt there probably were those who came to Christ as a result of his evangelism, but he doesn't emphasize that. And so I think we can say from this that the advance of the gospel happens as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel. In other words, Paul could be certain that the gospel was advancing simply because he was making Christ known. I think the same is true for our lives as well. Although our heart's desire is that all would come to know Jesus and would know the life-giving reconciliation that comes from God. But even if they don't, we know that we have been faithful to the calling that God has given us and the gospel has advanced. So Paul knew he was a faithful messenger but he left the results in the hand of God. We simply need to lovingly and wisely share what God has done for us in Christ. Some will respond and some will not. But either way, the gospel progresses. If we're going to be gospel-centered believers, then we must also be gospel-proclaiming believers. 
So we've seen Paul prioritizing his gospel in his letter, in his evangelism, and now thirdly, in his example. His example in verse 14. Look at it with me. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here in verse 14, Paul gives one more reason for his claim that the gospel has advanced. First, he said it's advanced because there's people all around me that know I'm there because of Christ. And then he says the gospel's advancing because it's going out by the mouth of the, the brothers in Christ. The result of seeing Paul's example, the church had grown in boldness and courage in speaking the gospel. His boldness in the midst of his bondage caused the Roman Christians to speak boldly as well. Is this not backwards? Shouldn't the persecution of the great Christian leaders strike fear in all of the followers? Can't they see that if they go out and do the same exact things, that they could get thrown in prison like Paul? Well, that's exactly what the enemy and those doing his bidding would want Christians to do. But instead, God, by his spirit, uses the courage of one to inspire others. When the Roman Christians saw the spirit, that the spirit equipped Paul to speak the gospel boldly, even in his chains, they were encouraged to speak courageously too, knowing that the same spirit would equip them. One evangelist was replaced by many more. God is in the business of using what was intended for evil for producing good. Notice that it says that they're able to speak the word. It doesn't just say that they were able to live more boldly, but it related directly to their mouths and what came out of their mouths. They, they were speaking out the gospel. They weren't just living the gospel. They were proclaiming it. It caused their tongues to declare who Jesus was and what he had done. It says they were able to speak it without fear. The fear evaporated. And yet it is fear that most often silences the church and silences Christians, right? It's fear of failure. It's fear of rejection. Fear of the consequences, what the other person might do that keeps us from speaking as boldly as we should. And yet here we see the Roman church, those who were around Paul, were emboldened and fear departed. And friends, this is what we, the church in America, need at this moment. Christians, those of us that hold a biblical worldview and, and hold the scriptures as the final authority for life and for ministry, are being told to keep quiet, that our views are outdated, that they're not accepted in the classrooms, in the businesses, and in the politics. So as a result, Christians are becoming silent. They're closet Christians. They go to church in their small groups. They can talk all the great Christian talk, but their coworkers have no idea that they're believers. Their classmates don't know that they follow Christ because they've bought in 
to the message of fear. And fear can easily come upon us. Friends, we've become accustomed to religious freedom and really become being the religious majority over the course of this nation, which I believe has made us comfortable and maybe a little lazy. But as you can sense, that's changing. It's changing. Christianity is not as widely accepted and as smiled upon, at least some teachings of Christianity. And so others are trying to adapt Christianity to fit with the changing times. But if we're going to stand upon the Word of God and not budge from what God has said, it's going to become increasingly unpopular. And so we need to see the example of Paul ourselves this morning. See the Apostle Paul in chains, speaking out for Christ, concerned primarily with the reputation of Jesus over his own reputation and his own welfare. And may we be emboldened to stand for Christ in our day and be the gospel light to those around us. We can also look to our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted as we speak for the same truths and the same doctrines that we hold to. They, pastors that step in the pulpit every week, not sure if he'll have another week to preach, not sure if something's going to happen to their family. Christians who are always gathering in secret. They are experiencing much persecution for the name of Christ. They're risking their livelihoods, their reputations, and their families. And if we would look at what they are suffering, not only can we pray for them, but we can be inspired to live courageously in our own lives. I believe Christian biography does this same thing reading the stories of those who have gone before us, who have stood for Christ in the midst of opposition, can strengthen our own resolve for Christ in our day. I'm reminded, as I was preparing this, the example fresh on my mind was Pastor Andrew Brunson. Some of you may know that name. He's actually an American citizen from North Carolina, but he's been ministering in Turkey for the last, I believe, 20 years. And he was arrested and has been in prison now for a couple years under the name of terrorism, but really it's simply because of his faith in Christ. And good news this week, he was moved from a prison which was affecting his health dramatically to simply house arrest, but I couldn't help but notice the similarities between I'm studying Paul who's on house arrest and now Paul, and now this pastor Andrew Brunson is also under house arrest. It's great celebration, but he's still in chains. And we need to pray for him. Hearing his testimony, a a statement he made this week saying, he said, the apostles stood for Christ in their day and now it's my time to stand for Christ, which is true for all of us. Now is our time. God has different plans for each one of us where our lives may head, but we are all called to stand for Christ boldly and courageously. Why can we be bold? Why can we face opposition with boldness? Let me give you four quick reasons. First is because of Jesus' presence. 
Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus commissions his disciples and the church to go into all the nations and to make disciples. And he gives them this great charge. And he ends it and says, Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, Jesus is with his church. He will never leave us or forsake us. No matter where we are, no matter if everyone forsakes us, Christ is with us, and that can give us boldness. Secondly, the Father's providence. The Father's providence. The second reason we can be bold. Romans 8.28. We know that God uses all things in our lives for our good. Even if we face what might seem like evil or difficult circumstances, we know that the Father is lovingly at work. He's a good Father who is looking to work in our lives and has not left us, has not forgotten us. Even in, the, in a prison cell, we can be confident of this. Thirdly, we can be bold because of the Spirit's power. Jesus said to the first disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they are to wait into Jerusalem and until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And there they will be his witnesses as the Holy Spirit empowers them to do that. Friends, the same spirit that was in the apostles resides within us to give us the words when we need them, to give us the boldness and the strength to confront an evil and wicked generation. May we not stand sheepishly back thinking that we have a position of weakness. We have a position of strength and of power. And finally, the fourth reason we can be bold is because of the word's promise. We don't go out sharing our own ideas and our good advice and our opinions. We're not sharing our political opinions when we're talking to our neighbors. We're primarily sharing the word of God. Isaiah 55 verse 11 says that his word will not return void but will accomplish all that he sent it out to do. Friends, the word of God is not a dead book. It is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, if we would but yield it for the cause of Christ. It is the word of God that will convert your family members and your friends. It is the word of God that will pierce the darkness. Not our good advice or our views. So we can be bold because of Jesus' presence, the Father's providence, the Spirit's power, the Word's promise. We can charge ahead. There's no reason to be timid for the cause of Christ. Let us confess any timidity we might have and ask that God would give us opportunity and courage to declare the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the first way that Paul prioritized the gospel is that he prioritized the advance of the gospel over his own welfare. Secondly, this morning, And finally, we'll see that Paul prioritized the preaching of Christ over his own popularity. He prioritized the preaching of Christ over his own popularity. Verses 15 through 18. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
The first group that he mentions, I'm calling competitive brothers. This first group is competitive brothers. These are men who are motivated by envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, it says. Now, they claim to be simply preaching the gospel. They say, hey, we're just trying to make the gospel known. But what Paul says is that they don't make that claim sincerely. They don't make that claim from pure motives. There's also a hidden meaning, a a hidden motive in what they're trying to do. They want to see Paul afflicted. They want to see Paul brought down. This is evidenced in their envy. Envy, a, a jealousy for Paul's position, for Paul's giftedness, and Paul's popularity with the believers. No doubt there's some, some brothers there that saw how much Paul was loved and, a, and in one sense adored for who he was. He was a, a great gift to the church and, and they all loved him. And there were some that were envious of that position that he had in the hearts and in the churches. It says that they also do this out of rivalry or strife. This is the word that means that they were competitively trying to be first. They were clawing for the first position. And frankly, then he he says in verse 17, they do it out of selfish ambition. This is just a a general term that says they're, they're selfish. They're thinking about themselves. A desire to further their own interests at all costs. And so these preachers wanted the giftedness and the popularity for themselves. Now, I have a hard time thinking of those who came to Christ in these early days of the church and yet then wanted to cause more pain to Paul in his imprisonment. Right? I mean, he's the, he's the great-grandfather of the whole church. You think that everyone loves him who came to Christ under his ministry or, or a, a follow-up result of his ministry. And yet Paul says there's some here, verse 17, that they they think they're going to afflict Paul more. They want Paul to rot there in his prison cell. Now, it's important to know that these, these preachers, these competitive brothers, are not false teachers. They're not preaching a false gospel. We know from Galatians chapter 1, that Paul is very strong against those who preach a different gospel. If they tweak with the message of Christ at all and add works to that gospel or anything of the sort, then Paul says anathema. They are to be condemned. He doesn't use that kind of language here. So the best we can determine is that the doctrine of these preachers was, was spot on. They were preaching a true and accurate gospel. But their Motives were wrong. The problem was not with their doctrine, but with their hearts. And it's amazing to see, isn't it, how our sinful hearts can take something good and twist it for selfish purposes. And this is even more amazing in ministry, right? The the work of God, where we are seeking to minister to God's people and to the, the world around us on behalf of our Savior, A wonderful privilege. And yet, selfish ambition can creep in just like it can in any other thing. I'm reminded of Moses and his brother and sister 
Remember, they were, they were jealous for the giftedness that Moses had. They said, hey, we're special too. Why can't we do the same things he does? And God condemned them, struck Miriam with leprosy for such a thought. But envy in ministry is very easy. Why can't I preach like him? Why aren't there more, why are there more people at their church? Their small group seems to be more successful than ours. God seems to be blessing their ministry more than mine. If I could preach like that, then people would really admire me. This jealousy is not hard to imagine, but it's hard to hear about. Right? You can cringe at some of those statements because you know that's not the way you're supposed to be thinking about preaching or about ministry or about small group or about this is all the Lord's work. It's not about us. And yet, our sinful natures are quick at hand. Friends, we need to examine the areas of our heart to see if there is places of envy and jealousy in us. I think the application is directly to ministry here, but we can expand it to any area. And in fact, I, I would venture to guess that if there's an area of temptation for envy or jealousy for you, it's going to be in the area of your strengths. It's typically where we are strong and somewhat good at that we have a hard time seeing, seeing someone succeed more in that very area. It's in the soil of our strengths that envy sprouts. But friends, envy and jealousy ought not to be so in us. They should have no place among God's people. We are to be characterized by love, self-sacrificial love modeled by our Savior, not by self-promoting kind of envy and jealousy. And so it's a sin that must be identified. We must repent of it and put it to death by the power of the Spirit. Envy is a perfect example of a selfish heart turned in on itself. It cannot love or do good. It only seeks the downfall of the rival. It's been said that envy shoots at others and wounds herself. But more fundamentally, our envy says something about how we view God. All of life is theological. All of life is spiritual. And everything that we do relates to our relationship with God. And the issue of envy is no different. Stephen Charnock, a great Puritan who wrote many volumes on studying God, wrote this. He said, envy is a denial of providence. Envy is a denial of providence. Let's think about that for a moment. When we are jealous of what others have and what others can do, we are denying God's providence in our life. How so? Well, God is the one who gave you the skills you have. God is the one who placed you where you're at in the position you're in. He's orchestrated all things. And so to be envious of someone else is a dissatisfaction with where God has placed you. And this is why another Puritan by the name of Thomas Manton wrote that envy is a rebellion against God himself because we're rejecting what God has given us. Friends, let us rid ourselves of all envy and rivalry, especially in our ministry. We want to be like the second group that Paul mentions, the second group that he mentions 
I'm calling the caring brothers. The, we have the competitive brothers. Next, we have the caring brothers. He says that others, verse 15, do it from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. These were dear brothers who not only were aligned with Paul in their message, but also in their intent, that they wanted to see Paul released. They wanted to see the gospel go forward. They were right in stride with Paul. They loved him. They wanted to see him flourish. And they understood why he was there. He was there because of the defense of the gospel. And so no doubt, these brothers were an encouragement to Paul. They understood exactly what Paul was going through. So, if you're in Paul's position, how would you respond to this? You're chained up to a guard, and you hear that there's people preaching some that are totally with you and others that are doing it out of competition and envy. How would you respond? I think we would all be tempted to be angry, to be bitter, and resentful towards those competitive brothers, would we not? We'd think things like, don't they understand that we're all on the same team? We're all trying to accomplish the same thing here. Why are you fighting against me? I'm not the enemy. Even a, a why me? Why are you, why are you picking, picking on me? I'm the guy that's chained up. Why can't they just preach Christ for Christ's sake? We may even question their legitimacy and start a campaign to bring them down. All in the cause of righteousness, of course. But notice what Paul's response is. This is instructive for us, friends. Verse 18. He says, what then? What do I do? What are we supposed to do with this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul pushes aside the whole contest. He says, this isn't a game, this isn't a contest. He's, in effect, says that victory is not found in the popularity of any one of us, but only if the message of Christ is proclaimed. Paul's primary concern was that the message of Christ be proclaimed to any and all. And if that was being done, then Paul rejoiced. He was overjoyed that that was happening. Paul's joy was not swayed by circumstances, but was grounded in Christ. He made God's priorities his priorities. And ultimately, if other brothers were sinning while they preached, he knew that God would deal with them. He didn't need to. But he could rejoice that the name of Jesus was still being proclaimed. Friends, as we look at the universal church around the world and in this nation, let us rejoice wherever the true gospel is being proclaimed. It's a gospel of the crucified Son of God who absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Christ alone that saves. He accomplished it all. It is finished. It's a, also a gospel that must be received in faith alone, not by any works. Sinners must repent of their rebellion and trust completely in the sacrifice of Christ. 
It's a gospel of grace. There's nothing the sinner can do to earn God's favor or contribute to his salvation. He, Christ gets the glory because he does all the work. It's a gospel that calls believers to live lives of holiness. It teaches that the Spirit is at work sanctifying believers. And this is a gospel that brings each believer home to the presence of the Lord one day. This is the only gospel there is. It's the only good news out there. Everything else falls short of this. And we should rejoice wherever and whenever and however this true gospel is proclaimed. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, if you have not depended upon him for your salvation, then I have good news for you. Jesus is the savior of sinners. All you need to do is to call out to him, repent of your sin, turning from your wickedness and rebellion and turn to him in faith, trusting him completely to save you from the wrath of God that hangs over your head as a result of your sin. You will either bow to him as Lord in this life or you'll bow to him as judge in the next. It's out of love for you, I call you to repent of Jesus today. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait until tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know if you have tomorrow. The Lord could call you into eternity tonight. Don't wait. You can call out to the Lord right where you're at and he is merciful to save. I would love to talk to you if you have any questions about this. I just invite you after the service to pray and conclude here to come down. I'll be down in front. Please come and talk to me. I'd love to show you what it means to follow Jesus. Well, friends, what have we seen this morning in these verses? We've seen here in Philippians chapter 1 how Paul prioritized the gospel. He cared more for the advance of the gospel than his own welfare and his own popularity. Friends, may God enable us to be consumed in the same way for the cause of Christ. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we come to you praising you for the good news that we have through Jesus. The gospel, that there is freedom from sin, that we are in bondage no more, and that we can experience eternal life with you. There is no greater news. And Lord, there is nothing which should give us greater joy than that our dear Savior has become more and more known. That his message is spread farther and wider. I thank you for the faithfulness of this church to proclaim the gospel through the years. I thank you for the faithfulness of our missionaries who are, even now, around the globe, advancing the gospel 
Father, would you strengthen us all? Would you embolden us all? That we would speak the word without fear. And we will give you the praise because it is you who equip and empower your people to be ambassadors for Christ. May you receive the glory now and forevermore. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.